Hello, everyone. My name is Pastor Jesse Smout, and you are listening to the LFDC Podcast. We appreciate you taking the time to check out our sermon from January 17th. Today's sermon is called, A Living Faith. So today's sermon is going to be about um, our name and a big reason why it will never change, at least under um, my prayerful petition with the Lord. Okay, um, obviously we want to say that the word never is a very scary word to use. Like, you know, Mark, we have in this example, we will never buy a building or we will not buy a building this time around. And then what did the Lord say? He said, buy a building, even if it's an old LDS seminary building, buy it um, because I'm trying to do something with you. And so we're in an old seminary building, kind of odd, kind of peculiar, but we have grown to love it and, you know, made it our own. We, we took down the wall right here in the middle. It was just a, a, a thick accordion wall, but we took it down and we made it one big classroom instead of two, and so now we get to uh, worship God in an old LDS seminary. And the cool thing is we've got a cool yard, so come summertime, we'll just take our baptismal out in the yard and we'll have pool parties. I don't know how many people you can fit in that, but uh, maybe two or three at a time. Probably not much more. It's not very big, you guys. When I got in there, I was like, oh my gosh, how am I going to baptize Ian? He's like, as big as it. Uh, but Pastor Rachel was already saying the stuff, so we just we just rolled with it, right? Ian? Um, yeah. For those of you that were watching closely, you could tell I was panicked. I was like, "Oh no, we're not ready." But she is saying the words, so I'm dunking him whether whether we're ready or not. And so anyway, our name. I, not that I want to use the word never, but I love our name, um, and that was something that even Pastor Rachel said. When we talked about the transition, she said, even the name, you can change. And I, I really didn't want to do that because I didn't want it to feel like a new church. I wanted it to feel like um, the church we've grown to love, but with some revamped vision and some revamped, um, you know, changed leadership. And obviously that's always hard to go through. And we've, got, we've experienced the growing pains of that. But we are, uh, we are expecting God to do something in this year and with uh, through our body. So we've had those two sermons. And today I want to talk about our name and why I will never um, request God to uh, change it. I love our name. And so today's sermon is going to be called A Living Faith. Not Living Faith, the church, but A Living Faith, um, the reason I love our name. And so we're going to get into the book of Romans today. Chapter 10 is where we'll spend most of our time. But I do want to give you some context in where we're at and what's going on. So in Romans 9, um, some of the, the key verses in Romans chapter 9, and Romans 9 is about God's sovereign choice. If you've never studied Romans 9, I recommend it. It's, a, uh, it's one that will make you think at the least. So in verse 19, I'm going to just read a couple of the verses in Romans 19 to give, or Romans 9 to give us some context of what we're getting into. Um, will you say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O men? Answer back to God. Will that is molded? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? That's a very common verse that is quoted. Um, I actually posted it earlier this week. Uh, it was actually a meme. It was a funny meme. But essentially it said, the message version would say, why did you make me like this, Potter? And it was quoting Harry Potter. And I haven't really seen those, but I still thought it was funny. Uh, because that is one of my favorite favorite things that Paul has written in the book of Romans. I know people probably don't like that, but I think it's so true. You, you are the way you are, um, and I'm not talking about the sin of your nature, uh, but you are who you are, and you can't look back at the Creator and say, why did you make me like this? 
right? We look at Job, and, and Job challenges God and why he did what he did or allowed to happen what happened. And, and God said, where were you at the foundation of the earth? What are the measurements? How deep is the sea? How high are the mountains, right? He begins to question them, all these things that he clearly doesn't know. And that's the same with us. We, I don't know why I was born um, in the, the early 90s. I don't know why I was born in Montana. I don't know why I was born, you know. You can take the logical route and say, well, but no. I mean, God put my spirit in this guy, you know. I know why I look the way I look, because I look a little more like my dad, and I, and I like soda pops, right? <laughs> <laughs> you guys like soda pops, too? <laughs> You know, I heard a rumor that if you drink a diet soda pop, that it cancels out the sugar you have. So, no. It's not true, but I heard a rumor about it. <laughs> anyway, um, we cannot challenge our, our creator and uh, why he molded us the way he molded us. In verse 30 uh, through 32, it continues in this idea of what shall we say then? The, the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, right? He's talking, so in Romans chapter 9, just so you know, he's talking about the Israelites. And he says, not everyone of the Abraham lineage is chosen just because they're of the Abraham lineage, right? He's saying they're chosen from that lineage, not that they're chosen because of that lineage. Lineage. So not everyone who is of Abraham is of God. It's those he chose of that lineage. And so he's, he's talking about the, the Israelite versus the Gentiles. And that's a lot of what Paul writes about because he was a Pharisee. And so the Jews rejected him. And so his teachings were primarily in reference to Gentiles and why the Gentiles are now being preached to rather than the Jew, at least in his ministry. And so the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, right? So the people who are not of God, especially in Paul's time, have now attained righteousness, right? It, that is a righteousness that is by faith, right? Our righteousness no longer comes from works, deeds, law, following that, but it comes by faith. Our righteousness is now by faith. And we are Gentiles, and so that is by faith. Uh, that is how we receive our faith. But, in verse 31, that Israel who pursued a law that it would lead to righteousness, a law being the covenant, the old covenant, Mosaic law, those types of things, their sacrifices, their, uh, all the things. I'm not going to get into all of that right now. But that would lead to righteousness, right? The point of old covenant law was to lead to right standing with God. Um, but it could not, right? And it says, it did not succeed. We did not succeed in reaching that law because why we are carnal and we are uh, bound to sin and so if you are bound to a law it only can do so much right so there is nothing a human can do to achieve righteousness that's what paul is arguing though we had the law though the israelites had the law we could never achieve righteousness so why in verse 32 why because they did not pursue it by faith but as it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. So that is a bit of context from Romans chapter 9. He is talking about this separation and why now the, the gospel message is coming to the Gentiles and why the Israelites have failed in some regard because we know they rejected their cornerstone, the chief, Jesus Christ. They rejected him. And so now the message went to the Gentiles. And so in Romans chapter 10, I am going to read a good portion, if not all, of this chapter. So bear with me. I will try to make it quick. But in verse 1, it says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, being the Israelites' context, is that they may be saved. 
For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. So something to understand is zeal with no knowledge is fanaticism. Do you guys understand what I mean when I say fanaticism? That is someone who will follow something to the point of death, even though they don't know if it's right or wrong. Right? And I'll be honest, politics have become a bit like that. Sometimes we can get wrapped up in politics and believe something, even if there's no truth in it. There were some things that I didn't know if I believed or not, but if I was a fanatic, I would have believed them immediately, without a shadow of doubt, done no research, and believed it. And that's what he's saying about the Israelites in this, they have a zeal for God. He says, I wish, I pray, I have a heart's desire for them to be saved. But I, bear, I bear witness, because while he was a Pharisee before he was saved, I bear personal witness that they have a zeal for God. Right? I speak of this oftentimes, sorry, I, my wife told me I say it right a lot. I'm trying, but I just keep saying it. Um, they have a zeal for God. The LDS, that's a great example. They have a zeal for God. I, I am just like Paul in this sentiment, right? I have a heart's desire and prayer to God for them that they may be saved. The LDS people, they have a zeal for God. They genuinely do. They want to pursue God. But what are they doing? This exact thing that Paul is writing about, about the Pharisees and the Jewish people, is the same thing we experience here in Utah, right? They're trying to achieve righteousness by works, which is impossible. We're people. We cannot and will not ever achieve righteousness by works, that is what separates us from most other religions in this world, is we are not a works-based religion. And oftentimes it feels like we are, but it's not. We are not. And so enthusiasm with no understanding is not good. Be enthusiastic. Paul is not saying don't be zealous. He's saying be zealous with knowledge. Be zealous with understanding. Be zealous according to what you know. Right? Verse 3, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God... And seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Right? So they sought to establish their own righteousness by works, through works. So he said, I did not come to abolish the law, but fulfill the law. So what does that mean? Fulfill the law is the point of it. So the, the goal of the old covenant law was Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? The reason they even had the Old Covenant, the reason God even bare uh, uh, with the Israelites and even worked with them, and, and even though they failed over and over and over, and they're an example of what we are now as Christians, though they did that, so the goal of the law, the reason God even worked with the Israelites to the extent he did and kept granting them forgiveness, granting them mercy, granting them grace, even though they kept being stubborn and rebelling and rebelling and rebelling, the whole, the whole goal of the Old Covenant was to eventually lead to their Messiah. Right? Why did they hold hope? Because of the Messiah. And what the Jewish people had hoped for Messiah was not what God gave them. God gave them a Messiah who was born in a manger, a Messiah who um, freed them from their sin via a sacrifice of his own blood. But they were hoping for a freedom from oppression. But the reality is Jesus Christ taught you know, the world hated me, it rejected me, so thus it will also reject you. And so the goal of the law wasn't to, uh, and Christ says he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. Uh, in Galatians 3.23, it says we were held captive by the law, right? So we're no longer held captive by the law. So in Romans 6.14, it also says, 
Uh, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. So when we talk about um, this verse in Romans 10, verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes, it's not a covenant of workspace trying to achieve righteousness. That's what we're talking about. You no longer have to uh, do this to achieve righteousness. Now it's by one thing, and it's that, it's that faith, faith alone. So I'm actually going to skip the next few verses. Um, they can be summed up by this quote by John Stott, um, which I really like. It says, Storming the ramparts of heaven and potholing in Hades in search of Christ are equally unnecessary, for Christ has come, he died, and been raised, and is therefore immediately accessible to faith. We do not need to do anything. Everything that is necessary has already been done. That's by John Stott. If you don't know who he is, he's a pretty cool dude. Um, but that is, that is kind of the point of what Paul is writing, and I liked what John Stott wrote in that regard. Essentially saying, you don't need to go search high and low for righteousness. Jesus Christ accomplished it all. It's done. It's over. Everything you needed is now complete. So in verse 8, I continue, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. The word is near you. The word is something I really like to emphasize there. In your mouth and in your heart. What does that mean? You have the word being logos, being God, and it could be rhema as well. But the word of God is in you, in your heart, knowing you know the voice of God, and you know the word of God being the Bible. You know it. It's in your heart and in your mouth, which means you talk about it. You speak about it. What's funny is I said what I said last week about that quote, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words, and how I used to love that. But then as I grew in the Lord, I realized that that's not really fair. And then I actually, on Instagram, saw some... Um, something making fun of it. Now, I don't want to make fun of it, but I realize that I think it's an error that we believe that that's how we should live. I do, and I'm being very honest with you guys when I say that because I don't want us to think, I live out my life, I live the gospel, and that's enough. Another, another quote by Vodi Bakum, and I don't, I, don't, I don't have it in my passage, I don't have it in my notes, but I read it this week, is that he said, you cannot live the gospel because that's not what the gospel is. If you say, I live the gospel, that's not the gospel. The gospel is a, it's a message. It's, a, it's news. You can't live news. If I read the front paper of the news and said, I'm living that, you can't live that. The gospel is news meant to be shared. So you can't live the gospel. You can live in according to the light of the gospel. You can live according to the realization of the gospel. You can live according to the understanding of the gospel. You can't live the gospel. Right? If you live the gospel, that's essentially saying, I am the gospel. You're not the gospel. You can live according to the gospel. You should live according to the gospel. If you've heard the gospel and you've received the gospel, you should live according to it. But you essentially argue you can't live the gospel. The gospel is news. It's the good news. And so what do we do with the gospel? We give it. If we withhold the news, then we're not about the gospel. Because not, the gospel is news. We all in here who have understood and heard the gospel message now have a paper in our back pocket, the greatest news that ever was, and sometimes we give it to people and sometimes we don't, and to which is our own error. We should give it to everyone. And whether they want it or not is not up to us. 
but us giving it to them is up to us, right? And that was the point of last week's sermon. And so in parentheses, right after this, and some translations won't have it in parentheses, but I'm reading from the ESV, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. What faith? The saving faith. What faith? Not faith to, to experience miracles. That's not what we're talking about when we say faith. We say the faith that saves. The faith that proves righteousness. The faith that leads to salvation. That faith, that is the word of faith that we proclaim, right? We find that word proclaim again. Verse 9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, we should all know Romans 10, 9, right? Elijah, you should know this verse inside and outside. I'm looking at you very intently because you need to know this. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You have to, what? Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart. That is counted to you as righteousness. In Romans uh, 10, 10, it continues, For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. You know what's funny is I started doing a study on this because I saw some people commenting on this and I never thought about it. There's all these things in Christianity you hear, you grow accustomed to, you hear all the time, and then you actually study them and you're like, okay, that's interesting because you actually don't find that in the Word of God, but you can draw conclusions to that point uh, in the Word of God, but it's not actually in the Word of God. And something that's not in the Word of God, you'll never see in the Word of God, is invite Jesus into your heart. That's not in the Word of God. That's something we've drawn the conclusion of to invite Jesus into your heart. But it's not in there because the Holy Spirit comes into your life. Right? Jesus is the Word. So you know how you invite Jesus into your life? Get into your Bible. Get into your Bible. I, I told the youth that. I said, equate your Bible to Jesus. So when they leave it here on Sunday and don't have it all week long, you didn't have Jesus all, all week long. what you do? Right? It's a joke, but you understand where I'm getting at. That the importance of the Word of God is that it should be treated as such. It should be our teaching, our instruction. It is God's living and active word, sharper than a two-edged sword. Right? Piercing. Both joint and moral. For with one, with the heart, one believes and is justified. So I, under, I want you to understand that there are two points in salvation that I cling to and I agree with. Um, and that's the saving aspect of Jesus Christ. But then there's the lordship of Jesus Christ. And this is actually a doctrine you can get into uh, and some disagree, so you guys can study it for yourself. But I, I read this, um, and this is by Sam Storms. Um, and if you don't know who that is, uh, he is a pastor, I believe in like Oklahoma or something like that. He's written several books, uh, and I really have clinged to a lot of his resources recently because he considers, considers himself a Reformed charismatic, which, which is what I would also consider myself. Um, so I really appreciate his work. He's got over 15, 20 books, and he has tons of articles and resources um, for people. And so this actually came from him. We are saved by faith alone, but not by the faith which is alone. And that's a very common phrase, actually. That's not necessarily him either. Right? So we are saved by faith alone, but that faith alone shouldn't be alone. Does that make sense? Faith alone, but then no change in your life wasn't a true saving faith. A living faith, and the point of our name is saying, my faith is alive. How do we know our faith is alive? That which we do. Right? 
that which we do. And so he says, we are saved by faith alone, but not by the faith which is alone. And they actually have that in Greek, so it's probably been said for a long time. Saving faith is a working faith, not a um, standstill faith, a passive faith. The faith by means of which we are justified is the kind or quality of faith that produces obedience and fruit of the Spirit. In the absence of obedience, in the absence of fruit, in the absence of submission to the lordship of Jesus, there is doubt whether the faith is saving. And that's the argument that I like to pose to you and, and for you to consider, is that if you have no, if your faith does not lead to uh, obedience, to fruit, um, to a, a lack of submission to his lordship over your life, then that's when the doubt of the saving faith is active. Consider uh, the ten virgins and their candles. You had five who had enough oil and five who did not. Consider parables like that when you consider the faith that is active. And so when we talk about living faith, we're talking about an active, alive faith. And how is that represented? It's represented by someone who has a lordship of Jesus Christ not just a savior, savior of Jesus Christ. Meaning, I make Jesus the Lord of my life, not just the Savior. He is two in one. He is the Savior of my life and the Lord. He's not just my Savior. He's not just my get-out-of-jail-free card. No one would ever say he's just my Lord. He has to be your Savior and your Lord, right? I've never heard someone, he's only my Lord, not my Savior. I've never heard that. But you hear all the time people say he's my Savior, but they won't admit that he is Lord. What happens is, in America especially, but the growing theme in America, and the growing theme in even Christians, uh, is a, a me-centric gospel, a me-centric world, right? The, the, the world is teaching us that all paths lead to heaven. You just have to do what's right for you. The world is telling us that we are important. And, and the world is now idolizing self. We no longer idol, idolize uh, Baal or Baal. Right? We no longer idolize the idols of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. That's not who we idolize. You can make arguments about idolizing um, entertainment. You can make arguments about idolizing football teams. But all of those things still lead to the idol of self. Correct? The idol of self is the new idol of the world. And so when we are Christians, we have to be very, very careful about when things start to glorify ourselves. Because if they do, we're starting to look more like the world than what Christian people should look like, than what the New Covenant Church looked like. And so he says, you have to make him Lord of your life. But there are some churches out there that will tell you, well, you're going to make the choices for your life. You, you make that call. You make that decision. Pray to God. Let him make that decision for you. And some of us may not be there yet where we fully understand his will for us all of the time. But what I can tell you is if you get into the word of God, you can use logical discernment. And as, as a teacher, a Bible teacher who puts multiple choice questions on the exams for kids, um, I said if you do process of elimination, you guys have heard that term, right? You clearly know it's one or two choices. I gave you four, but one of them's pizza. The third one makes no sense. So it's really, you have 50-50 chance, take a shot, right? And that's not what we should do with our lives, 
But what I'm saying is, through if you know your word, if you know the Bible, if you understand discernment, understanding, wisdom, if you get into the Bible, you will begin to clearly see what God wants for you to do. Not based on prayer always. Prayer definitely is important and you should pray every single time. But sometimes just logically, you know the right choice because the other choice is anti-scriptural. Where it doesn't actually point to God. Opponents of Lordship Salvation insist, and this is once again from Sam Storms, insist that such a view produces works into the gospel that compromises grace. So some people argue that the Lordship of Jesus Christ compromises faith alone and uh, grace alone. But that's not true, because as you get into books like James, show me your fruit, or show me your faith by your fruit, by your works, Right? So we have to understand that it's twofold, and we have to harmonize these issues. Faith should, this is their argument, not, not lordship, but the other argument for not lordship. Faith should, but may not produce works of obedience. According to this view, you can be a Christian without necessarily being a disciple. You can receive Jesus as Savior without necessarily submitting to him as Lord. And I do not believe that. I do not agree with that. How you live and what you believe after you profess your faith in Christ has no bearing on whether or not you really believed in him in the first place. The only time this may happen is when somebody leads you to salvation and you're a part of a church that doesn't tell you you need to submit to Jesus as Lord. It could be a genuine faith where you accepted him as Savior, but no one around you, the person who led you to the Lord, the, the church you attend, no one around you tells you submit to his lordship. In that instance, okay, there's grace. Right? But I am telling you, I do believe in the, the lordship of Jesus Christ, and we should not cling to him only as our savior, but also as our lord of our lives. Lordship salvation believes salvation to neither be passive nor fruitless. That is what I want. The main point I want you to understand from this is that lordship salvation believes there is no such thing as a passive, fruitless Christian. Right? If you are of the vine, you will bear fruit, and those who do not bear fruit are cut off. A living and active faith. So when you hear our name, I want you to consider that type of life. Verse 11, For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all. I love Paul is always making this argument because the Jewish people like to cling to the God of Israel, the God of Jacob, the God of Abraham. He was, but now he's the God of all. And he's always been the Lord of all. He just was using the Jewish people um, to fulfill his purpose. Bestowing his riches, not monetary riches, spiritual blessing, on all who call on him. His spiritual riches being for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Riches in what? Riches in heaven, riches in salvation, riches in spirituality riches in um, pursuing the fruit of the Spirit. Verse 14, for then, how then, we're, we're coming to the end of where I want to get to, how then will they call on him to whom they have not believed? And he's talking about the Israelite people. But he's also, in a broader sense, we can take this and apply it to anyone. How then will they call on him? Because it says, whoever calls upon the name of Jesus Christ will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? No one can call on the name of Jesus to be saved if they don't believe him. How are they to believe in whom they have never heard? 
So not only can they not call on him if they don't believe in him, but they can't call on him if they've never heard of him. How are they to hear without someone preaching? You can change that word to proclaiming. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. That's a big, huge asterisk on why we are even in this church. The point of this church, the vision of this church, the mission of this church is that we are people with beautiful feet. <laughs> That's why a lot of you just don't wear shoes during worship. You got beautiful feet because you're preaching the good news everywhere you go. Some of us have ugly feet, and we're working on them. We're getting into our Bibles, we're getting into the prayer closet, and everywhere we go, we're telling about what we've seen and we've heard. We're proclaiming it on the highs and the lows. To every person we meet, we're telling them about the goodness of God, the goodness of salvation, the good news. The gospel is news to be shared, right? And so he says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Um, this is, salvation occurs only in a context created by proclamation of the gospel. Salvation cannot occur where gospel is not proclaimed. It cannot, it will not, unfortunately. The gospel must be proclaimed in order for salvation to occur. On the part of those commissioned to proclaim it. Who is commissioned to proclaim it? Well, Matthew 28, Jesus Christ commissions his disciples, go therefore and preach the gospel. We are commissioned to proclaim it. We are. So I want to... I think it would be fun. I don't think it's a necessity, but I think it would be fun to always talk about how beautiful our feet are, but understand this passage when we're talking about it. I would love to just say, Brian, you got beautiful feet today. <laughs> I know by the Spirit that you have been a busy man this past week telling the good news. How beautiful are your feet? I think that would be fun. I'm not saying it's a necessity. I'm not going to put it on the wall anywhere. Some of you guys are like, yeah, it's good. Beautiful feet, put it everywhere. It's going to be our new vision. It could be a fun sticker. That's a good idea. Stickers aren't that expensive. Um, that's where it comes from. Verse 17, uh, or verse uh, 16, for they have not obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. So verse 17, this is the important uh, place we're getting. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. We should all also know that verse, Elijah. I once again look to you. If you one day want to be a pastor, you better know the Bible. And sometimes you know it, but guess what? You can always know it better. That's what I'm discovering to a very real extent in 2020 is that uh, through the course of 2020, God has taken me through the Bible like I'd never been through it before. And that's the beauty of the Bible is that no matter how many times you've been through it, you don't know it as well as you think you do. And the more you know, the more you realize, the less you know. Yes. Amen. Amen. So faith, and this is the faith that I'm talking about, a living, alive, active faith, the faith that saves, the faith that shows Christ his lordship, faith, believing, salvation, that type of faith. Not faith for miracles. That's not what we're talking about today. That's not the point of this word that he uses 
The point of this word that he uses is talking about faith that saves. So faith that saves comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And this word right here, I did look at it for you guys, is rhema word, which is the spoken word, which means he's not saying uh, faith comes through giving them a Bible. Because we know the logos to mean the written word of God. Now I do believe uh, if I were to write a blog, that is still a rhema word because it's it's a spoken but in a new medium that we have. Um, but the Logos is only the Bible, and so that's why we cling to that. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the spoken word of God via Christ. So we need to know our Bible so we can speak about it. Because faith is only going to come, the type of faith that saves salvation, is only going to come in a context where we proclaim that which we know via, I'm going to use that word a couple times in a row, the word of God. Uh, this is a quote by Spurgeon. Faith cannot be washed into us by immersion, nor sprinkled upon us in christening. It is not to be poured into us from a chalice, nor generated in us by a consecrated piece of bread. There is no magic about it. It comes by hearing the word of God, and by that way only. The type of living and active faith, a living faith, is only achieved by proclamation of the gospel message, proclamation of the good news, proclamation of the word of God. And so when I, when, when I think about our name, there, there are so many ways you can take faith. And there is faith um, that says, God, I believe, in the, I, I believe in you. I believe I'm going to experience a miracle. That, there is that faith. There is the faith that says, God, though I go through trial and tribulation, I trust in you. That is a real faith. I dare say that's a realer faith. That's a deeper faith. A faith that says, I mean, Tim Chalice, I, I sent some, or elders and deacons, I sent them a quiz by Tim Chalice, and I love him. Um, his son wanted to be a pastor. His son was off of Bible college. His son just passed away. 20 years old, something like that, 20, around 20 years old. And you know what he's doing? He's glorifying God through it. That's why I, I would dare say that's a deeper level of faith. Because there is, I cannot imagine something, you know, I have a kid now. I can't imagine something more hard than losing your own son, losing your own child. Who's at Bible college, such aspirations. You could argue, God, he wants to be a pastor. Why would you take him home early? That's hard. But faith that still trusts in God and glorifies God through a situation like that, that is a deep, deep faith. And that's what we're talking about when we submit to Christ as Lord. We're saying, I don't understand why what happened just happened, but you're Lord. You are Lord. Something I love uh, that Eli said. We're going through the book of uh, Job and Genesis with Luke, which I know he doesn't necessarily understand what's going on, but we're super excited to read in the Bible. And... Something I love that Eli said, uh, do you guys know, we all, we all probably know the story of Samuel when he ran to Eli because he thought Eli was calling his name, but it was the first time he ever heard the voice of God. And he says, okay, next time you hear someone call your name, say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. I love that. 
Do you know the message? I think we forget the message that God gave to Samuel. It was that Eli and his family was going to die. And so Samuel woke up the next morning and Eli said, Take nothing, give, tell me everything. And if you withhold it from me, then far be it, the same curse or same blessing, whatever it is, it will be upon you too. And so Samuel's like, well, I don't want to die. So here it is. <laughs> All right, he tells him, he says, well, here's what God told me. He said, you failed with your kids, and so your time's up, and you're going to die. You know what Eli's response is? This is how I know he's still a good prophet and a good man of God. He said, if it seems best to him, for he is God, then so be it. Eli looked at death, looked at a prophetic word about death, about his own life and his own sons, and said, if, it's, if it pleases him, who is to challenge him? He is God, so be it. He didn't run from it. He didn't fight it. He didn't go to the prayer closet and say, God, please, no. Maybe he could have. I don't know. There is that example of the king where God extended his life. Maybe. But he said, he's the Lord. He may do whatever's best to him, whatever seems fitting to him. He is God. And that is a faith that is so deep. And so when I talk about a living and active faith, when we look at our name, I'm talking about faith that even surpasses believing in God to move a mountain. It's saying, my life is his, he is my Lord, and I'm going to tell everyone about it. It's bearing fruit. It's not passive. It's, not, it's living in obedience to God everywhere you go. It's getting into your Bible. It's getting into the prayer closet. It's worshiping him. It's honoring him. It's living for him. That's living faith. That's living out my salvation. That's living in light of the gospel message. Not living the gospel, living in light of it. Living in the understanding of it. Right? In 1 John chapter 1, I love this. It says, uh, He who is in the darkness has no light. You're either in the light or in the dark. And so we have to make a mental decision, where do I want to reside? And living faith says, I'm living in the light of the gospel. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word, for your, for your truth, for the gospel message. God, I thank you for you sending your son to die on the cross. Lord God, we know that we're sinful by nature. We're born in a way that doesn't please you. We are, we are at enmity with you by birth, God. And you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty so that now we don't have to work to achieve righteousness because we know, as a human, we never could. It was never in the cards. Even our righteousness is as filthy rags to a holy, holy God. God, so I know there's not one thing I could do to make you see me as more righteous. The only thing I can do is have a faith that is real and active and alive. Because I've experienced this unmerited, unwarranted grace which saves. Your son Jesus Christ paid the ultimate price so that I could now live. So that I could find truth. Father, so I thus will live for you. My faith will not be alone. It will be accompanied by uh, faith because I am so pleased with you, God. Not because I need you to be pleased with me. Thank you for your son. Thank you for the word of God. Thank you for giving us the Bible, God. Without it, we'd be a mess. Thank you for giving us something where, where if we're ever struggling, we can look to the word of God and know we can find answers there that aren't anywhere else. 
We don't need Google. We just need your Bible. Father, we glorify you. We praise you. For your glory alone, have your way. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Once again, thank you for tuning in to the LFDC podcast. We pray you were blessed by today's word. Hope to see you next week. God bless.